Welcome to Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success, hosted by John Biggs. Every week, we talk to an amazing person about a time they failed and what they learned. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Keep Going. I'm here with my good friend, Josh Karp. We've known each other for decades now, I believe. Uh, Josh, welcome to the uh, to the first show. You're our first failure. Well, thank you, uh, John. <laughs> when we first we first got on, uh, I'm steeped with failure, so hopefully I'll be able to uh, <laughs> uh, some stories and, and maybe some lessons too. So the goal of the show, quite simply, is to talk to super smart people that I know who have failed. Uh, I think there's I think there's way too much of this, uh, I guess, survivorship bias that happens when it comes to a lot of these uh, startup interviews and all these startup shows. Uh, and there are plenty of folks out there who have done great things and also have also have, uh, dealt with some uh, real setbacks, uh, I think myself included. And I think I thank you for coming on as the, uh, as the brave first soul to give this a try. Uh, so the way it goes, you're going to tell us about what you were working on, what happened, uh, how you solved it or didn't solve it, and then uh, and then what you learned from that. And I think this is going to be a pretty cool lesson for anybody who's starting out trying to build stuff. Uh, I know I want to hear uh, what you have to say. So the first substantial failure that comes to mind was with a company I started a, a number of years ago, uh, more than 10 years ago. And the failure sunk the company. And uh, however, in hindsight, it was very hard to know that we were headed towards that. And one might say, well, it was just bad luck, but I don't think it was. And I think that there are warning signs that I should have seen that other people may be looking at right now, but not able to recognize that uh, could have avoided the situation uh, that we got into. So I had started a company, this was back um, uh, in the uh, early 2000s, and um, it was just an idea. And uh, I was fortunate at being able to talk about this idea in a compelling fashion and get people excited about it. Um, it's not really relevant to the story, but that idea was called Market to Me. And mm -hmm. being in Chicago, the, um, uh, the community of investors, uh, especially back then, was relatively small. So I would go and I would talk to various investors and try to sell them on this beautiful vision for a company. And the essence of Market to me was we know that companies are selling our information. Why not bundle up your own information and sell it yourself, essentially? you can market directly to me. So instead of the Facebooks and back then the Googles and MySpaces and Yahoo's um, owning or, and collecting your information and selling it only on their behalf, I would give people a mechanism to collect their own information and then offer it directly to advertisers and say, hey, if you want me to pay attention, you have to market to me. My data, my attention has value. And so pay me directly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and the failure has nothing to do uh, with the utility of the idea. Um, I don't know if that, that concept uh, ultimately had utility, but so anyway, I had a, a wonderful deck and I'm, I was excited about the idea and along the way, it was actually in a bar and this probably should have been the first red flag. I met a fellow who talked about being a Silicon Valley 
um, uh, Luminary and how he had worked for companies. And maybe, John, you'll recognize this one, Ashton Tate, you know, mm-hmm. the, the company that uh, built uh, the D-Base products. Um, and he had dropped many other names of these companies and these uh, um, founders that he had worked for. And he immediately took a liking to me and to the idea. So as things would happen, you know, I was excited. This was my first real attempt at starting a company. Um, He said, let me be your CEO. And at the time I was uh, ecstatic. I'm like, oh my goodness, this gray haired fellow with all this Silicon Valley experience wants to take the helm of my startup that is little more than a a presentation. Um, And so we went down that road. I hired him as the CEO of the company. He lived. And did you pay him? Did you pay him cash or did you pay? Was it in uh, was it an equity sort of thing? No, it was all in equity, but he was not super keen on making those arrangements formally. He's like, don't worry about it. We're going to get to it. Um, You know, I'll I'll have an ownership stake in the company. But what he said he was really good at and what he did was raise money for people. And that was what I thought my problem was. I needed to raise money. So he took the the deck and he took the idea. And this is over a period of of weeks and and months. And we developed a relationship. And um, he went and found um, uh, investors that he had worked with in the past. So these are people that knew him and he arranged meetings always at the most fancy restaurants you can imagine. This is, this is a warning sign. Um, Mm -hmm. Another warning sign was that he lived in a, essentially at the top floor of a club, um, the uh, Chicago athletic association. He lived in a unit at the top floor. I think there was only one unit that turned out to be another um, uh, red flag. So he would arrange these lavish lunches, expensive, and he would always pick up the tab. I would never pick up the tab. And we were able to convince some of these people who he knew to make an investment. Now, uh, John, you and maybe the people listening to this might already be able to project where this is going. So these are these are investors that he already knew. There was I had incorporated the company, but there was no formal um arrangement for him. He didn't have equity. He wasn't formally an officer of the company. And I was a compelling speaker. And back then, this idea seemed as viable as any of the other ideas out there. So he went to these investors and he said, we're trying to raise $3 million. So until we raise that full $3 million, why don't you just give the money to me? And Mm -hmm. I will hold on to the money until we reach the $3 million. And then I will transfer the entire amount to the company. And these people, they they were enthralled with the idea. I was a good speaker. He had this relationship with them. The first investor said, okay, gave him the money. Follow-on investors gave him the money. It was around $2 million. And of Mm -hmm. course... He stole all the money. He spent it. He, he, he used the money to fund this lavish lifestyle. And the realization of that and what happened after that um, sunk the company. It also sunk me personally um, in a lot of different ways. So that's the setup for, uh, for the failure. Mm-hmm. 
So um, the when we came to the realization, um, he uh, he just what became evasive. Um, you know, we would say, you know, okay, we, we've reached two million dollars. All the investors agreed. Let's stop raising. I mean, two million dollars is a lot of money. Let's let's just start to build the company. And it was one delay after another delay. And then the investors got to the point where they're like, you know what? We want to return the money. Now, he, he was not very uh, reachable. There were long periods of time when I couldn't get a hold of him. But the investors, mm-hmm. of course, I was thinking, well, you know, the investors, I have to, I have to you know, manage them. I have to communicate with them. So what turned from excitement that we had raised $2 million and we were going to go and build this company, it turned into concern and then it turned into anger. I tell you, some of the people who had invested are worth a lot of money. I thought they were going to have me killed. We couldn't mm-hmm. reach guy. So at one point, I did get him uh, in a room. Again, it was at a fancy restaurant. He said, fine, I will return their money. Right in front of me, he pulled out a checkbook, wrote out checks to return the money and said, look, I, I'm going to return the money. Don't worry about it. We departed. This is relevant to what eventually happened. He, he went and he sent those checks via FedEx across mm-hmm. state lines to return mm-hmm. the money. So obviously the checks bounced. So at this point, um, one of the investors who I had become uh, uh, friendly, if you could call it that, that I was in the most contact with, he's like, I'm going to call the FBI. I'm going to call the SEC. And uh, he did. And we did. The FBI was not interested. It was too mm-hmm. little money for them to spend any time on it. They're going after you know hundreds of millions or more of fraud, not $2 million. However, Another one of the investors had a childhood friend who happened to work for the office of the FBI here in Chicago. And because (laughs) they were friends, okay, because they were friends, he said, all right, we'll open an investigation. And there was a grand jury and I had to go and um, I'll be a part of the grand jury. I was a subject of an FBI investigation. Ultimately, he did go to jail. But it wasn't because he stole the $2 million. He went to jail for wire fraud. It was because mm. he wrote those bad checks and mailed them out. If he hadn't done that, he would have gotten away 100% scot-free. So what is the, the moral of that story? And I was thinking about it before um, we, we came together today. My sense is that there are normal, in quotes, processes that startups go through to raise their first round of funding. It's not something that, um, and, I, and, and I have another story that is uh, about raising money as well, but um, it, 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 if you find yourself in a situation where you are far outside of what seems to be the common way to raise money, if you are doing something that is not formal, there aren't lawyers involved, there aren't agreements, um, then you should be very, very weary of what you're doing. If you're deviating too far from um, what is the norm, if you have somebody that you're involved with that seems too good to be true, his resume 
he worked for people. I don't remember exactly who, but it was unverifiable. You know, the, the, the executives he worked for wouldn't take my call to do a reference check. It, it would be like hmm. saying, I work directly for Bill Gates. Give him a call and he'll tell you who I am. I couldn't get a hold of him. He did pass a background check, um, which ultimately we found the background check did not catch other criminal things he was involved with. So before you, you start working with somebody that's going to be uh, instrumental to building your business, do a real background check. I don't care how smooth they are, how trustworthy they seem, look into their background. And if somebody seems too good to be true, um, they are too good to be true. It's better to miss out on working with a person that is perfect and you don't know than it is to work with somebody that is a criminal or that is shady and that is going to sink your company. So uh -huh. that's, that, and, and it ruined me financially. Um, um, you know, all my money, all my identity was tied up in this business as a 20 something year old person. And it wrecked me. Um, I was being evicted. They turned off the power. I had these, those, you know, those, those long orange extension cords. I lived in an apartment complex. I ran them underneath the door into outlets in the hallway so I could oh my power God. my refrigerator and my TV. Yeah. So it, it completely wrecked me and it took, um, it took years before I was able to emotionally, um, recover from, you know, this, uh, this devastation that it, it happened over a period of, of less than a year, uh, in total. Hmm. And so, so the, so the bottom line is you basically, and this, this was, this was early on in your, in your entrepreneurial career. So it seemed like everything seemed great. So the, so the, but if it seems too good to be true, you basically just have to, you have to, if, if your if your mother says she loves you, you should check it out, that kind of thing. Yes. And I think that entrepreneurs tend to get to the point, especially when there's some momentum where they ignore their intuition and they shouldn't, um, you know, you got to that point because you had an insight, you had a, a technical capability, you were able to build something that, uh, or, or you have a dream that is compelling and don't ignore your intuition, uh, lean into your intuition, because at the end of the day, the only person representing you is you and don't ignore the warning signs because you, uh, you get caught up in the emotion of something. Like when the check started coming in, I mean, he would show me the bank accounts and it was like amazing, uh -huh. you know, $400,000, $800,000, you know, we, we crested a million dollars and it was incredible. I thought, you know, this is just the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. Um, but my intuition was, you know, who is this guy? And I ignored it because I was chasing the money and chasing the dream and um, I shouldn't have ignored it. And that's another another lesson, you know, trust your instincts. If you've gotten to the point where you're going to be able to build something, maybe um, you got there in part because your instincts were right. Don't ignore them. Uh, follow them. And I think ultimately you'll end up in a better place. Just a quick follow up question. So let's say we're so you're in the heat of entrepreneurial success. You're getting the checks coming in. It seems it seems like everything is headed the right way. What would you have done? What would you have done differently now 
uh, when you saw those checks coming in? Would you have just made sure that it was in a uh, in a joint bank account? Would you make sure that you know who this guy was in some in some real way? Well, the easiest thing to do, and there were other successful people, other successful business people, that, and nobody ever said, Josh, why am I not writing the check out to the company? You know, mm-hmm. why, why am I writing the check out to this guy? Um, don't ignore the formal things you're supposed to do. You know, form a business, get a mm-hmm. bank account, have some attorney involved, even casually, you can have some attorney just saying, hey, you know, if somebody is writing a check to the business, make sure it's going to the business. So I, I, I was not paying attention to any of the fundamentals and the fundamentals are important. So mm-hmm. I just got too caught up in it. So that's what I would have done differently. And I, I wish somebody had said, Josh, why are we writing a check to the business, to this guy? Why aren't we writing it to the <laughs> And just that one, that one notion would have saved us so much trouble. Um, mm-hmm. But we ignored, I ignored the fundamentals and that was a big mistake. And you said you had another story that you wanted to share. So um, unfortunately, it's not the only time that um, um, I ignored some of the, uh, the fundamentals. Um, you know, uh, I had started this company called uh, The Printed Blog, and it was one of the first print magazines comprised of blogs and other online content. And the, the bottom line with that failure was I was playing entrepreneur. I wasn't being an entrepreneur. And in that particular situation, I fell in love with the idea and it captured people's imagination. The amount of press that I received, in fact, I think that's how Mm -hmm. you and I came in contact. The amount of press that I received around this idea um, was overwhelming. Before we had issued our our, our first publication, there was a, a half page print story with pictures in the New York Times. I was on mm-hmm. radio, I was on TV. Um, the amount of intensity around the world, around what we were doing was so much that I got people willing to buy ads. People sent me checks. I still have the checks. I didn't even cash the check. The, the thing there was um, I was playing uh, entrepreneur. I wasn't being one and I let myself fall in love with the output of the startup, not the fact that I was running a business. And mm-hmm. again, there, there were fundamentals that I just, uh, I just missed. Now, with the printed blog, I was using my own money uh, and a tremendous amount of it. And that was almost a, a negative because, you know, knock on wood, I was able to, you know, put a, a substantial sum of money into this business. But at the end of the day, I fell in love with um, the experience that I was getting. I didn't fall in love with the idea of trying to build a business. And frankly, there was a business to build. People wanted to advertise. They wanted to be a part of it. It was overwhelming. And I didn't, I didn't see it. I was having too much fun. And like I said, I was playing entrepreneur and not being one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the lesson there is if you are fortunate to get some energy around what you're doing. And I'm sure a number of the people that are going to hear this podcast um, uh, will be in that situation. Make sure that you are focused on the fundamentals of building a business, of making money, of, of growing a culture, 
of servicing your clients, of providing the value that you're, you're suggesting uh, to your customers. And don't play an entrepreneur, be an entrepreneur. This is a, uh, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's exactly what, uh, what a lot of these listeners need to hear that idea of, of being an entrepreneur. What is it? What does being an entrepreneur mean to you now, now that you've gone through a few things that you've, uh, that you've built a, a few businesses already? So the things that I've been involved with that have been successful, it really does come back to the fundamentals, starting a business, building a business. If you look at the activities on a sheet of paper, none of them are particularly surprising. None of them are particularly complicated, yet entrepreneurs ignore those fundamentals all the time. I think social media hurts entrepreneurs in this regard, actually. So what I do, and I, I have started things uh, uh, subsequently, I'm working on projects right now um, that are starting to produce results, is I focus on those fundamentals. I make sure that from a, a legal structure perspective, I have a company, I have a bank account, I have an attorney involved. I'm making sure that we're paying taxes um, when, we're, when we do make money. Um, you know, it's, it's really cutting out the noise and focusing only on the, the fundamentals of growing a business. And it's been, it's been a lot more successful. And I've been fortunate to have the chance to advise other entrepreneurs that are starting out. And that's the first thing that I do is I say, what are the fundamentals that you should be focused on? And a lot of times they can't tell me those things off the top of their head. They're too engrossed in chasing a deal. They're too engrossed in adding features to their product. They never talk to their customers. They are hiding from the reality of the situation and not finding some way to face it directly, regardless of what it is. And I remind them that the fundamentals of starting a business are not that difficult. And uh -huh. you need to identify what they are and you need to do them. All the fancy stuff, all the press, all the fancy meals, all the fancy people, that is going to come, but only if you focus on the fundamentals. If you don't, you're going to burn out and fade away. And you're gonna look back at the company that could have been. So don't play entrepreneur, be one. Understand what the fundamentals are for the business that you're trying to build. Write them down, focus on them, execute them, and investors will come, customers will come, team members will come, and success will come. So I try to apply those principles to the things that I'm working on. And frankly, that focus and that discipline is making the difference for me right now. Uh -huh. And I would, um, I would suggest that uh, to any entrepreneur that has something with some energy around it, focusing on the fundamentals um, uh, can only be uh, helpful uh, to their effort. I think that's what they mean when they say they're looking for operators, right? You're, they're looking for folks who can operate the machinery of business as opposed to the, oh, I don't know, the red carpet of startups, right? 
I think that's what they mean. But if the if the CEO, if the founder, the visionary, the one that everyone wants to talk to isn't committed to disciplined operations, if they're not willing to turn the reins over, hopefully to the right person, um, then that right person is never going to be able to do what they need to. The, the activities between the founder and the operator are a Venn diagram, and there is overlap and there is commitment. The operator has to allow the visionary to talk about that beautiful dream and to push that beautiful vision. And the founder needs to let the operator put boundaries around what they do. They have to let the operator say no. Um, it's the, the founders, the, the founders should be wanting to say yes to everybody. And if you're fortunate enough to have an operator, the operator is the one saying no to everything. And they have to have that symbiotic relationship where you get the best of the visionary and the best of the disciplined operation. If the two aren't willing to give and take together, then the operator will lose, the visionary will win, and the business won't be successful. So this was uh, these were two fascinating stories of uh, failure. You're a, you're a you've done a number of businesses now. What are you working on specifically right now? That's that's been a success so far. So there are two projects that I'm working on, um, and um, you know neither of them they're they're more of side projects than anything else. And um, uh, you may get a chuckle out of uh, the one that I'll mention. Um, uh, it's not fully formed yet, although it will be in the, in the very near, fu- near future. For the longest time, John, I would tell people who expressed some regret at something to me that for $20, I will take full responsibility for any indiscretion in your life. <laughs> and they, they would have that reaction. They would They would giggle. And I always wondered to myself, if there was a, uh, an opportunity, you may call it a gag gift, you may call it a mechanism to help clear one's conscience, but I'm doing it. Um, gotguilt.com. For, okay, $20, okay. for $20, I will take full responsibility for any indiscretion in your life, and I will send you a beautiful certificate that states that you are no longer responsible. But that's just the first part. The second part is you can buy business card size certificates that are for a particular event. Let's say you and your friends are gonna go on a trip to Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So you, you buy these cards in advance and you hand them to your friends and you say, you know what? On this trip to Las Vegas, you can completely and totally let loose. And you can because you have this card saying that no matter what you do on this trip to Las Vegas, you are not responsible for your actions. So you can buy it for a trip to Las Vegas. You can buy it for a corporate retreat. You can buy it for a girl's trip. Um, You can buy it for any number of events where there's uh, debauchery and you can feel free to engage in whatever craziness you want because you have this card stating that no matter what you do, you're not responsible. Someone else is. Okay. <laughs> That's got guilt. And no, I, I haven't gotten broken from my, my you know, I, I didn't discover this at a spa when I was recovering from my failures. Um, this is something that I thought would be an interesting idea. And mm-hmm. um, uh, with the very initial site that I put up, uh, just with the smallest amount of 
presence on social media. I mean, really just the beginning. People have bought it. And the reaction has been, you know, a giggle and maybe an introspection. So, um, you know, I think it's also interesting because it's it's a physical thing, right? You're selling a physical product or you're selling, you're selling, uh, everybody can understand it immediately. You're selling a physical product to people and, uh, and you're taking, you're taking cash immediately. And you're in this, you're in this world where, where a lot of startups aren't, where the, everything is very, very nebulous. But now, now in your uh, now in your years of experience, you've realized, hey, I better sell some physical product, or it just doesn't work, right? That's right. No, this got guilt could make me more money than any of the other sort of fanciful social networks and print publications and marketing marketplaces that I've I've tried before. Um, yes, it's a physical product. Uh, people have a smile. People get it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 30 sales away from being profitable. It costs no money to put this together. <laughs> so, okay. Um, it's fun. Um, and you know, it's a platform for other adventures that I'm sure I will, uh, I will take, you know, I always consider myself to have an open road in front of me. And, um, despite my failures, um, I, I absolutely still feel that way and feel optimistic about um, businesses that haven't been born yet. Wonderful. All right, Josh, this has been an excellent episode. I mean, you're a great storyteller. So thank you for those. Uh, thank you for those tales of woe. Uh, and I'm glad you're uh, on your way to, uh, to profitability with this new thing. <laughs> thank you. Um, and uh, thanks for having me. This was, uh, this was fun. I enjoy talking about the, the bad things and, and the good things every so often. This is Keep Going. If you want to reach out at me, tweet at me at John Biggs. I'd love to hear your uh, stories of failure. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Keep Going. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when you're going through hell, Keep going. And where there's so cool.